0: Good afternoon, and welcome to Everyday Law. I'm your host, Bob Clark. As always, any of the discussions on this show are not intended to give legal advice for individual legal situations. If you have a legal problem, it's imperative that you marshal the facts, meet with an attorney, and discuss all of it and get the best advice that you can attain. Secondly, the opinions that are given on this show are not those of Howard County Community College. It's staff, faculty, students, or other employees. With those caveats, we do tend to talk about all manner of things on this show, and today we have a special guest. We have the Chief Administrative Judge of the Circuit Court for Baltimore County, Judge Kathleen Cox. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: I'd like to cover a variety of topics, but first I'd like to ask what it is that you actually do.
1: I am one of 20 judges on the Circuit Court in Baltimore County, and and at the Circuit Court level, you do a little bit of everything. You do... um, civil lawsuits, you do criminal lawsuits, you do a lot of family law, juvenile law. There's just that whole range of cases that come into a circuit court that uh, you cover whatever happens to be in front of you on any given day. Um, as the administrative judge, I've got added responsibilities of the organization of the the, the, the court docket, the budget for our court, uh, general sort of just management of the court personnel in the building and making sure that we do our very best to... Get as many cases heard in as little time as possible uh, and, and keep the trains moving in and out.
0: You have a court that is well-reputed in that department, so you must be doing your job well.
1: Well, thank you. You're thank
0: welcome. You. Um, it sounds like you wear a lot of different hats. Is your predominant work running things or you know trying cases, or, or how would you characterize things?
1: I've tried very hard to stay in the normal judge rotation sure. and not to become an administrator completely. And so how much time I spend on any part of that, you know, it, it rises and falls depending on the needs. This year this court was one of the courts that converted to the Maryland electronic court system, and that, as you can imagine, from going from an entire paper universe to uh, electronics involved a, a, an enormous focus of attention. So this year I've probably been doing about 50% of my work. has been administrative and 50% normal judging, but that's up a little higher than it normally would
0: be. I would say as a result of my being 64 years old and largely technologically incompetent, electronic filing has been the bane of my existence, but fortunately, my employees are able to carry it out.
1: Being 64 myself, I understand that. Excellent. (laughs) I I find that we're trainable, although I I also find that my 28-year-old assistant is intuitively significantly better at it than I will ever be. Surround yourself with younger people is my word of advice.
0: You know, I try and heed that advice, and everybody who works for me is younger than me. Maybe they are by default, but they still are. <laughs> so what are the putative advantages of electronic you know, legal world? And, and maybe we'll get into a little bit so our audience understands, but what are the actual thought of advantages?
1: It's funny because today I had a meeting with um, representatives from the county council and the county executive's office, and we're looking at long-term needs in our building and one of the huge advantages is over time the space requirements for court operations shrink significantly and the storage requirements which are massive when you're looking at you know 20 year retention and long term permanent retention for certain types of court records so the ability to store electronically as opposed to paper storage and the space it takes and the cost that it, you know relates to that space is big the biggest practical advantage to me is that when you're in a paper environment and files physically move throughout the building, having the paper catch up to the file at any point in time is always a challenge. You know, the file's in somebody's office when something gets filed in the clerk's office, and by the time they send that paper up to meet up with the file in whoever's office it was in, the file has been sent to somebody else's office. You know, we were constantly spending an inordinate amounts of time trying to match up paper and files in the old system. In the new system, if something's in, it's in. It's seeable immediately by anybody in any office. There's greater transparency in court records. There's a greater ability for a judge to know sort of the universe of what's there and to relate it to other electronic records that might be relevant. So it's a much more efficient organizational structure. And I think... You know, there's a learning curve that goes with it, as with anything. But I think the transparency of the court system is so much improved when you're not dealing with paper.
0: So is there any institutional reluctance?
1: You spend more time doing things that seem mundane.
0: Okay. Could you elaborate a little bit?
1: Yeah. You know, for instance, there may be 50 child support cases that are heard every day. Sure. And at the end of that docket, somebody would give you 50 orders in a stack and you would sign them. Now, every one of those has to be opened electronically. You click on something, you sign it, you store it, you email it. The mundane pieces of it take a little more time. The overall efficiency is much greater, but there's parts of it that seem slower to you when you're doing it. Mm -hmm. So there's some reluctance with some court personnel based on that. And the other is the thing you alluded to earlier – You know, if you're under a certain age, and I'm not sure what the cutoff actually is, you grew up on technology, and it's intuitive. For those of us that are above whatever that cutoff age is, some of us have worked with technology a lot and are comfortable going into it, but there's some others that don't. And and suddenly, it's not like you can choose which system you want to operate in. You know, the paper world's gone, and you're in an electronic age. And so, you know, for some... Judges or staff that have been here for 30 or 40 years, that's a tough
0: transition. So what is done about paper files that are in existence that continue to live on? I mean, are they scanned and converted into electronic files? Are new filings in those cases electronic and the old ones are old? Or how is that being addressed?
1: Both of those things. Anything new, after February 19th, anything filed in this county is filed electronically. And if you're not an electronic filer, like you're someone who's an individual representing themselves, you bring the paper to the clerk's office and they scan it in, and paper is shredded. So anything new is electronic. For the older files, so for an ongoing file that you're now filing into electronically, um, what we did in our court, and I think most have done this way, is that whenever that case was going to be heard in a courtroom setting, the file was to be scanned in its entirety before that hearing. Um, That became somewhat unmanageable in a very large court environment where we get 34,000 files each year. Wow. Um, yeah. So when you look at, for instance, child support, where the file may be going on for 18 years until the child hits the age of majority, Sure. Um, we made some, I think, logical decisions on how to prioritize our scanning. So for criminal cases, they're scanned before they're coming to trial. Um, For civil lawsuits, they're scanned before they're coming to trial. For child support cases, um, we adopted a protocol of scanning for the older files. We scanned the last two years' worth of orders, but not necessarily the last 20 years or 15 years or whatever it might be. Um, So for the most part, when a case is being heard on its merits, the entire matter is scanned in, but there's some classifications of cases that tend to live a long time, um, long um family law cases, foreclosure cases, child support cases, um, post-sentencing cases that are criminal matters. Some of those are, are very thick, very old files where what's being heard now isn't dependent on that old record. So those are sort of the lowest priority on what we scan and convert.
0: So I presume that when all of this was initiated, there were outside forces that were Educating the court system about how to do things—private companies or something?
1: Absolutely. I mean, we had a consultant. You know, I was not involved in those efforts, but there were certainly companies that came in. They'd been on the project. It was approved and studied by the legislature because it was a substantial financial commitment to convert over. But I think the belief is long-term there's a cost savings that's associated with going electronic um, that makes the investment make sense. Uh, but it, And it's a statewide project, not an individual county decision.
0: So was it being done in the smaller counties first and then the larger? Because I noticed some of the largest counties have not fallen in line yet.
1: It was piloted in Anne Arundel County, which in the Maryland court system is sort of one of the middle-sized counties. It then was rolled out sort of geographically. It went to the eastern shore. I remember. Yeah, Um, and and you're absolutely right. The smaller and mid-sized counties have all gone live, is the term. Baltimore County was the first large county to go live. Um, Montgomery County is slated to do their conversion in February. Uh, And then the following year, Prince George's is supposed to go, and Baltimore City will be uh, the last frontier. Um, and, And I think, in part, it was based on the size and resources in the county, I think Baltimore City is anticipated to be the most difficult conversion because you have to it, it, you have to convert a lot of your equipment. So we had to rewire certain parts of the buildings. There was a lot that needed to be upgraded before you could actually just bring in the system. Sure. Um, we did computer upgrades. You did printer upgrades. You did wiring and infrastructure upgrades. And I think some of those some of those changes are going to be particularly challenging in the very old courthouse. Um,
0: Historic courthouse. In court areas Baltimore
1: City. Sure. Yeah, exactly. Sure.
0: So I would think that there are benefits yet ahead that they are advertising for the court system in this. What's the kind of forward-looking things, or have you heard of forward-looking things associated with this electronic system in the courts in Maryland?
1: Um, the biggest two that I know of that are— or actually three that are sort of close to happening— Um, One is to expand the use of video conferencing, and right now most counties are using video capability for doing bail reviews from jails, so you don't have to transport prisoners. Um, There's a hope to expand the use of that for um, not just local jails, but detention centers for hearings with prisoners where it's not a trial, uh, but maybe it's a violation of probation proceeding, but you have to bring somebody from Western Maryland in one of the correctional facilities or from a mental health facility where you need to do a review hearing for someone who's committed. Um, There are always safety and security issues along with other costs associated with prisoner transport or transport of mentally ill individuals.
0: Sure.
1: Um, The expanded use of video conferencing in certain sorts of uh, family law areas, um, and and the rules keep expanding to increase the range of things that you can do with remote Appearance. Um, there's an exciting one that's being piloted right now with the use of remote translator services because as the population in Maryland continues to diversify, um, I find that the use of foreign language translators, mostly Hispanic but not just Spanish, there's a lot of Russian translators here, um, the, the, the ability to use video conferencing uh, and remote translation services is a tremendous benefit in terms of cost savings, in terms of availability, um, in terms of access to justice issues for individuals. Um, So those are two that are coming on pretty soon um, and are being piloted right now in other courts. because the third and it's gone out of my head for now. But Perfectly I'll okay. Back to me. <laughs> so,
0: not to be selfish about it, but for us civil trial lawyers, I would hope that there would be a day that scheduling conferences could be done through videos so I could sit at home in my pajamas and do it and where, um, you know, motions hearings could be done that way and that sort of thing. Is that?
1: Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. Um, because a lot of those things are more ministerial than they're substantive. Sure. There's, there's no reason to be dragging people in for a lot of it, and I think a lot of, I mean, I know we do scheduling conferences in all complex cases now, um, and we do, we specially assign them, we do a scheduling conference at the beginning of them. Which is um, a, brilliant, always,
0: a brilliant thing, incidentally.
1: Well, thank you. It, I think it helps everybody. It's a win-win. Okay. Uh, but we uh, absolutely give people the option of doing those uh, by appearing in person or, or, or conferencing in. I mean, there's certain times where you get more done if people are present in the room, like when you're trying to settle a case. Sure. But there are a lot of other times where really what you need is somebody's access to their calendar um, or an intelligent discussion around a problem, but, it, but you don't need people face-to-face to do it.
0: There are probably instances where that helps keep the peace as well.
1: Yeah, I think that's very true.
0: Well, let's harken back a little bit that I often ask my judicial guests uh, the path that they took to things was there a point in time in your life when you were, you know, sitting watching television and you said, you know, I really want to be a judge someday, or, or how did this evolve?
1: I'm probably the exact opposite of that path. Okay. I um I when I was about to graduate from college with my law no, with my English degree and my parents said, what are you going to do? Um, I thought I would maybe go to law school or maybe go to business school, and the only thing I was clear on was. I would not be a courtroom lawyer. I had, you know, honestly, I mean, public speaking was something that was terrifying to me at that time. It was the thing that was the most clear that I would never consider doing. And yet when I got into law school, the courtroom part of it was the most fascinating. Um, I clerked for a judge that I greatly admired. Judge Miller. Yep. Absolutely. He was a, he was a tremendous role model. Um, and I couldn't get away from the fascination with courtrooms, so decided I would try it and see if, you know, I didn't want to not do something because I was afraid of doing it. I thought it was better to sort of try it and see if I liked it, and I loved courtroom work. Um, and over the years decided, uh, I, I sort of migrated to where my career started, which was wanting to be a judge and wanting to do this end of the business um, as I got later on in my career.
0: And Judge Miller was on the federal court bench, and i that's an entirely different animal. It is. And it is. did how did he, working with him kind of inform what you do presently?
1: He was—I I really admired just a lot about him, but his work ethic was amazing. I've never seen anybody who was as industrious. You know, every day he came in, he had tremendous patience for whatever he did, and at night— he would pack up two briefcases of things and send them home and take them home and read and come back the next morning, you know, ready to start all over again. Um, I admired his, the, the, the thoroughness and the thoughtfulness that he gave to every case. He really, you could tell he really thought long and hard about decisions. None of it was taken for granted, particularly sentencing decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, he, was, he was just a tremendous role model. Uh, both in terms of his his dedication to the decisions that he made and and his work ethic and his patience. I think there's little
0: little appreciation for how hard the job is that you do and that he does and that the judges in the state of Maryland, which is my familiarity, do every day.
1: It's um, it's hard to appreciate the job until you sit in you sit in the bench and look out as opposed to sitting looking up and sort of evaluating what you think of the decisions that were made. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a very different transition, even for people who have, um, you know, long time aspired to become a judge and worked very hard to get in the position. When you're finally there and you're sitting there, it's a very different thing to do it in reality than to conceptualize it.
0: I would think that periodically you come into a position where you're doing a criminal sentencing or you're making decisions regarding, you know, which parent is going to have the child regularly, and those are pretty weighty things.
1: And you have a lot of discretion. Um, There's no absolute right or wrong to a lot of what you do. Um, It's very nuanced. So I think it's... um, yeah, there's there's some of those things that, that you know they are weighty decisions and nobody takes them lightly and it's how you sort of um, learn to make those decisions and do them uh, in a way that's kind to people but definitive because I, sometimes people just need an answer um, and you know debating it for weeks and weeks on end doesn't help they, people need an answer so you need to be decisive but but really. Thoughtful in how you get to the final decision, and kind in how you deliver it.
0: Can't always be easy when you have criminal violations of significance, where the offender is potentially a hazard to the public, and you have to decide—you know—what kind of chance you're going to give them, and under what circumstances.
1: Correct. Wow.
0: And you have background in the in the public defender's office, as I recall. I did. Now was yes. that was that state public defender or federal
1: federal okay I did federal for about three and a half years.
0: How'd you like that
1: i I mean it was a great job. I learned a lot um, and I think it's good for people if you if you're going to do if you're going to be a judge, you need to have been in a courtroom in my opinion so I think it it helps you understand from a lawyer perspective what it's like to be in a courtroom um before you're sitting there making the decisions in the courtroom. And I think doing public defender work, um, you know, philosophically, I think you know, I, feel, I feel very strongly that everybody deserves an opportunity to be heard and be heard fairly. Sure. So doing your best by somebody, even if they are uh, the, not the most appealing person who's done the most wonderful things, but still giving them an opportunity to be heard and put in their best light is important, Um and I think learning to litigate in a setting where, uh, in many respects, you know, the deck is stacked against you, um, but learning to be creative and thoughtful about it is a good way to learn.
0: One must be inventive. One of the things that we've heard from, we've had public defenders on we've had some very prominent criminal lawyers on recently and one of the things aside from the deck being stacked against you is it's a resource situation you have the state which to the perception of the defendants have infinite resources and investigators and access to forensic evidence and the defense which often has none of those things correct <laughs> yeah
1: i you know i met my husband in a courtroom we he was a prosecutor i was a defender we were on the opposite sides of many things, so we have um, we had these conversations in a lot of different ways, and um, and you're right. It it is a resource. It is a caseload and resource things a lot of times.
0: Is there any solution to that imbalance? In your estimation,
1: um, money is the solution to many things, but I don't think it's a realistic solution to it. Okay, I mean, you know, it it, it, it it's easier to it's an easier and more appealing thing to uh, advocate for funding for law enforcement than it is for public defender resources. Sure. Um, But a lot of the solutions to some of the challenges that they have are just resource.
0: Well, that's what the, you know, you're, I think the public perceives there's a heck of a lot of exonerations that are going on in the United States presently. And a lot of it is advances that have been made in forensic uh, law. And it, it just, when you see the exonerations, you kind of ask yourself, gosh, this guy was convicted on some hair fiber evidence or something years ago and never had a chance to bring in his own expert and didn't have a lawyer who was competent to show that the prosecution's hair fiber evidence expert was full of baloney.
1: Yeah, and, and I mean, and I don't know, you know, if you look at the volume of cases every year, the number of times that it, 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 it's wrong. I think it's really, really, really tiny, but nobody Agreed. ever wants to be wrong. Agreed. You know, none of us want to be
0: wrong. Well, and the problem is that, you know, if you get 18 years in, in the jail and you weren't guilty, then you are understandably aggrieved, and there's yep. a tendency in our society to think that everybody who is aggrieved is entitled to compensation. In some states, compensate people astronomically. Other states, like Maryland, are kind of grappling with what to do. Right. One of our guests, I guess last year, was... Uh, protagonist of a show called Making a Murderer. It was defense lawyer Jerry Buting. And the interesting thing about that case, it was his client was a guy who'd been jailed for a number of years. And got out of jail because he was exonerated and they got the guy and everything. And the state legislature in Wisconsin just had minimal compensation that he was going to receive for however many years, 15, 18 years. And they passed a special law in Stephen Avery's name, the Stephen Avery Act. And the governors and everybody were, you know, on television crowing him. And then, of course, shortly thereafter, he's charged with a new murder and it becomes the entire tale behind making a murder. It just seems sort of ironic. Mm -hmm. So well, and you know, ahead, and, and,
1: it, and it, it's interesting. Just compensation isn't necessarily what people need. Um, you know, services and, and getting reacclimated is huge, because uh, you know you, you can to put it in different context. Look at the people who win the lottery uh, and end up bankrupt years later. Sure, just dumping money on somebody doesn't necessarily put them in a position to make a new life for themselves. Um, There's a whole lot more to it, particularly if you're coming out of a long-term period of incarceration and don't have family or or other resources to help you get your life back in order.
0: It's a pretty tricky thing. Yeah. Yes, yeah. so you also worked at one of the most venerable firms, and I you know, sort of venable, little, venerable, venable yes, that was good. Uh, thank you very much. I've known a lot of people who've worked there through the years <laughs> and can you talk to us a little bit about your work at venable, what that involved, and how that informs your your present work as a judge
1: i um I actually worked at Venable at two parts of my career. I okay. worked right out of my clerkship. I went there for a brief period of time before I got the job off in the federal public defender's office. so it was a very new lawyer i was way at the bottom of the totem pole in a large law firm, uh, and and learned a lot about how complex litigation gets handled and, and, you know, all of the people that are involved in managing large pieces of litigation. And then after I left the Federal Public defenders, I was at a medium-sized county firm that merged back into Venable. So I came back to Venable the next time around um, as a new partner and was there for about 10 years before coming on the bench. Um, and, and that firm provided me with tremendous opportunities. It just—it had a complex range of civil litigation, um, and did some very interesting pro bono work. Probably the most interesting case I ever tried was a pro bono case that that firm had taken on. Um, so, it, just so
0: our audience knows, pro bono is free. Free. Right. It's it's a, an ennobling thing in the law.
1: Well, and it was a case that the firm took at the request of the uh, ACLU. Uh, on a racial discrimination suit on behalf of the former superintendent of schools on the eastern shore, and um, the firm put tremendous resources into investigating and preparing that case, and then just before it went to trial, the lawyer who had been handling it got uh, a federal uh, magistrate judge position. So I ended up taking it over right before the trial date and tried it with another lawyer, um, but there were things like that that were just really interesting, complex uh, litigation that were exciting to do um, with very good lawyers and uh, a lot of just interesting legal work.
0: Had you had any experience in such cases before taking that one on?
1: I had done other types of things. I had done little bits and pieces of some civil rights stuff before, but not there were anything of that nature. Um, but part of being a trial lawyer is if you learn your courtroom skills, um, a good trial lawyer can try any type of case with the right preparation, you know? Um, so it's just presenting facts to people in a way they understand them and explaining the law to them in a way that they can make the right decisions. So, it, uh, I had not handled a case exactly like that before no, but it, really it was a matter of figuring out how you present the factual background in a way that jurors could really understand how this person had been wronged.
0: Sure. So at some point in time you're at Venable and it's a very successful firm and I have some idea of the compensation for judges and the compensation for partners at successful firms, you obviously made a choice to accept less compensation for a different kind of job. Can you describe what sort of informed that decision?
1: It's what you want to, it's how you want to spend your career. And there were more things I thought I could do in this position that would be ultimately more satisfying to me, whatever the tradeoff in compensation was. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also, I mean, the, the the side benefit to me of this was, you know, when you're in a large law firm, your control over your time and schedule is very limited. Um, if you're going to be very successful, you're just, you know, the more successful you are, the more hours you've worked is what I found. Sure. And it's you would think it's different, but it's not. Um, one of the side benefits that I didn't really understand until I actually was in this position for a while was... Um, flexibility with my family, and I had three very young children at the time I came to this. Um, I had more control over my day-to-day schedule in ways that my, my work-life balance was better. Sure. So it was uh, a good move in a way I hadn't really fully anticipated.
0: If there was any advice, because we're in our waning moments now, that you would have for prospective lawyers and judges who are here attending Howard County Community College, or other listeners to our show? What would that be?
1: If you're a lawyer who has an interest in being a judge, I mean, the, the the biggest advice I can give to people is to be involved in their profession, not just coming to work and doing a good job, but expand your involvement into other areas within the profession. Be active in your community in ways. Um, that maybe tap into your legal skills, be active in bar association activities. Um, It's not just coming in and being good at what you get paid to do, but, you know, law is a profession, like medicine is a profession, like other teaching is a profession. It's not just the nine to five of it. It's how you kind of give to the community through the skills you acquire in this line of work. Um, So I, I think you need to really figure what drew you to the profession, um, which isn't just doing a job and earning a paycheck, but your way of wanting to give to the community.
0: I think that that probably applies to success in almost any profession, as you describe.
1: Yeah, I think that's probably very true.
0: Well, it's the end of the Everyday Law Show, and we are going to have to wish Judge Cox farewell. Thank you so much for coming on the program. I hope you would consider coming back again sometime.
1: Thank you for having me. I've
0: enjoyed it. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. This has been Everyday Law with your host, Bob Clark. Farewell.
1: Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.